0: Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Two months after leading a mutinous march on Moscow, the leader of the Wagner mercenary group is reported as killed in a mysterious plane crash. Mike will explain what it means for the future of this Russian private army, which has been doing the Kremlin's dirty work for a decade. We'll also get some thoughts from a former head of the British army.
1: It's going to divide Russia. Um, There are those who thoroughly support Putin's line, uh, thoroughly disapproved of the insurrection, the mutiny of a couple of months ago. But then there are others who regard Prigozhin
0: uh, as a hero. Four UN peacekeepers, three of them British, have been hospitalised in Cyprus after a confrontation in the buffer zone. It has caused a war of words between Turkey and the United Nations. The
2: peacekeepers acted in accordance with their mandate. And I think the Secretary-General was very clear in condemning uh, the assault against those peacekeepers.
0: We'll explain how the buffer zone works and what British troops are doing there. And six months after President Zelensky's Wings for Freedom appeal, Ukraine is to get F-16 fighter jets but don't expect any rapid change in the course of the war.
3: This is not a simple matter of parking a number of F-16s on the lawn outside Kyiv. It's actually a very, very big undertaking to develop a truly credible combat air capability. ZITREP with James Hurst and Professor Michael Clark.
0: We always aim to explain what events around the world mean for our defence and security. Now, that is something that generally relies on concrete facts, and those are quite hard to come by right now concerning the plane crash, which Russian authorities say has killed the leader of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin. We do know the crash has happened. There is plenty of footage of that. We know that his name was one of ten on the manifest for the private jet flight, along with his deputy, Dmitry Utkin, and several other senior figures in the Wagner group. So, Mike, is it fair to say with confidence that what was the leadership team of the Wagner group is now out of play? Whatever scenario of conspiracy theories you might want to look at here.
2: Yes, I think we can say that Prigozhin and Utkin, the deputy and co-founder of Wagner, are off the table for the time being. Even if this was an elaborate hoax and they were actually in the second aircraft and have faked their deaths in order to go underground, the reason for going underground, if that's what they were doing in a bizarre twist of the normal story, would be to go underground for 10 years or so until the heat comes off. And in which case, um, Pregosi might end up like um, Lord Lucan. You know, there would be sightings of him in beaches in Australia or in streets Ooh. in Argentina. But I think, you know, whether or not this is an elaborate hoax, the fact is these people are not now part of the scene. I mean, m- almost certainly they are dead. Um, but if by any chance they're not, they're not going to have any effect because the, the whole purpose of faking your own death is to go underground and just be invisible for several years. So, yes, they're off the scene. And what will happen next, of course, is an interesting question in, in, in relation to the Wagner Group, but also the effect that this will all have in, in Russia itself.
0: Uh, yeah, the, the, see, this is where your job gets a bit harder as explainer-in-chief because if the founders are off the table, what is the Wagner Group's future from here and, and and how significant is that for, for for us and the rest of the world
2: well they're certainly not going to go away and they won't disband they certainly won't re-integrate re-inte- into the russian military for any number of reasons they just won't and the point is i mean the, sing- the single point that's i think most important is that the wagner group are making a lot of money in africa in mali in uh, Libya, in the Central African Republic. They've been involved in uh, Burkina Faso, it is believed. They they would like to get involved, and they've been invited to be involved in Niger. And as the Sahel melts down politically, the Wagner Group are in a position to take advantage of that. And that's all good for Russia. And so, you know, whatever happens to Wagner as a, a private military company, the Wagner organization in Africa almost certainly will continue to function because it suits Putin it suits the Russian state
0: and it certainly suits them who are doing very well out of it and of course it is Ukraine that has really brought Wagner to the world's attention let's let's bring in forces news Ukraine reporter Simon Newton Simon what's the likelihood of any immediate impact in, in the war in Ukraine itself Well, Wagner obviously aren't officially, anyway, in in Ukraine anymore. They left
4: several months ago after, you know, spending best part of a year in, in Bakhmut, basically just throwing bodies into into this fight uh, and holding the line. And, and they've been replaced by, we believe, you know, VDV, sort of Russian paratroopers in that area. So in terms of the military impact on the ground, then very little probably because um, they, they weren't actually taking part. They were supposed to be subsumed into the army, Mike mentions the fact that that won't actually happen. And that was what prompted obviously this march on, on Rostov and on Moscow back in earlier in the summer. So... They clearly don't want to be part of of the of the larger Russian military in that respect, uh, and I think Mike's obviously right that the impact is going to be really felt in Africa and what happens there with these Wagner troops that are there. We we saw you know Prokhorov's last video appearance, if you like, we believe was this video that came out earlier this week of him possibly in Mali. There was some talk of them doing a, a deal with the leaders of the coup in Niger. Uh, you know, there's lots of fingers in lots of so, pies over there. And, so and
0: these are places that, that Wagner
4: has boots on the ground right now? Exactly, as Mike absolutely correctly says, obviously Wagner is very useful, has been very useful to the Kremlin over the years. And um, you know, I've seen people talking possibly about the Kremlin taking over Wagner in some sort of way. You know, repackaging it, putting their own people into the leadership of it because it is a very useful body to have. But in terms of military fighters, we've read that you know that some of the fighters that were in Belarus have now left. A lot of them have gone, uh, we believe, to Africa to uh, you know seek seek fortune there because that, that is where they make most of their money so uh, in terms of immediate impact on the
0: war in Ukraine so, possibly very little okay but I would suggest no tears are going to be shed in Ukraine or most of Ukraine for the loss no, of getting precaution because in terms of how Wagner are seen by Kiev and to really identify their significance as a as a military player in the world they were part of the annexation and a key part of the annexation of Crimea weren't they they were yes, and and they,
4: and they and they did play a key part. So they they will they will not be missed by Kiev at all, obviously. And in Bakhmut, they proved quite an effective fighting force, just because they they chucked bodies into the fight and they took the city you know a city that had very little strategic importance but was a kind of a symbol to the kremlin of, of a victory progression was going to deliver a victory for for the kremlin which which he did to an extent there so yes as a military force
0: them leaving the battlefield will be something key will be very very pleased to see mike we'll talk about the wider implications for russia in a moment but can we just look at the fact it could be coincidence but this came on the same day that the man known as General Armageddon was taken out of the picture, one of uh, one of Russia's top commanders, the top commander, effectively. Mm.
2: Yes, Sergoy Sorovikin. Uh, I mean, Sorovikin was uh, made commander of the whole operation in uh, back in October and then removed again in the new year. I think it was f- uh, end of uh, January when the retreat from Kherson, Uh, was completed and then he became deputy commander, one of three deputies to Gorazimov, who was then put in charge of the whole operation. And the point is that Sorovikin was always close to Prigozhin. He wasn't just close to him because they thought the same sort of thing. They both detested the way the Ministry of Defence worked in in Moscow, but Sorovikin owed Prigozhin. Because in Syria, Prigozhin saved uh, Sodovikin's bacon on one occasion. Sodovikin was responsible for a very bad attack; on number of, number of his troops were killed, and it was it was ne- negligence on the part of the commander. And Prigozin let them blame him for it, and Sodovikin owed him. And so the Prigozhin. Uh, attempted coup, if that's what it was, on the 24th of June, this you know, in the March on Moscow, was something that Sorolykin almost certainly knew something about beforehand, and they were just too close. So, I mean, Sorovikin disappeared that night, and then yesterday, he was formally relieved of his command as the Air Force commander, and he still hasn't been seen. He's said to be on holiday, his daughter says he's taking a arrest, most people assume he's under very close house arrest, but it may be worse than that. I mean, I wonder, I don't think we will see Sorolykin again I think something will happen to him because
0: um, he was so close to Prigozhin. But as as you say, actually, effectively, he was removed from that command two months ago. So I guess if there's operational impact on the war in Ukraine, it's already happened.
2: Yes. The Wagner group um, were making up about 25% of all the troops who were actually doing fighting on the front at one time. And so to have them taken out of the equation is a, is a boost for, for Ukraine. Not not 25% of the total number of troops in the country, but 25% of those fighting on the front line were Wagner people. So that's a benefit, but that benefit they got in June. I mean, what the Ukrainians will be pleased about is that this shows further dysfunction in the whole command structure. And of course the army itself is very split and very factionalized. There are lots of, of other private military companies running around, more than 20 of them. Them. the VDV as Simon said uh, the airborne troops are close to the Wagner group because a lot of them were, were had been VDV soldiers before mm. they joined Wagner the GRU military intelligence are close to Wagner they're not very popular the GRU and the FSB who are the equivalent to MI6 are, are not uh, you know are daggers drawn most of the time so this dysfunction within the whole uh, setup is something that the ukrainians will benefit from and the ukrainians i think looks as if they want to use this opportunity to make some big moves and there's, there's rumors today that they've tried some sort of landing in crimea i'm not sure about that at the moment not an invasion by any stretch but something
0: to further unbalance the russian military high command okay so we've talked about the, what it means for Ukraine. We've talked about what it means for Wagner. Uh, what about what it means for Russia? I'm going to get your thoughts in a moment, Mike. But first, let's hear the assessment of the former head of the British Army, General Lord Dannett.
1: It's going to divide Russia. Um, there are those who thoroughly support Putin's line, uh, thoroughly disapproved of the insurrection, the mutiny of a couple of months ago. But then there are others who regard Prigozhin uh, as a hero. I think the other thing to remember is that Bregosian heads the Wagner group of mercenaries. People will do what they're told because they're paid. So there's quite a group of people uh, who will follow whatever the leadership now of Wagner is. And this is bad news for Putin. Yes, it's good news for Putin insofar as he has shown that he's in charge. He's a tough man. He's the strong man. And he's uh, eliminated one of his opponents. But I'm afraid it's not the end of the matter. This is not the beginning of something, but the continuation of a major split within uh, within Russian society. Uh, I think he was weakened from the moment that Prigozhin started his ill-fated march uh, on Moscow. He's trying to restore his position. But it's not just the Prigozhin issue that's weakened Putin. The whole issue of the failure of his so-called special military operation in Ukraine the tens of thousands of Russians who have been killed. All this is building up pressure on Putin. And, of course, um, the sanctions that the West have piled on to Russia, uh, they are having an effect, and they are changing the quality of life within Russia. So pressure is piling on Putin in a number of ways.
0: Mike, uh, do you agree with General Lord Dannett's assessment this is going to further pile pressure on Vladimir Putin? Yes. I mean, Putin emerges from
2: this immediately stronger, looking like the godfather who's exacted his revenge two months afterwards. But it ultimately, it just adds uh, to the sense of gangster state that's almost out of control. And I think Lord Dan is also right in terms of the, the losses that Wagner have taken. I mean, Prigozhin himself, a couple of weeks ago, gave a, a figure. He said that 78,000 men had cycled through the Wagner ranks, and I I think the figure is closer to 100,000 personally, looking at figures, but he said 78,000, and he admitted that over 60,000 were casualties, 22,000 killed in action, and 38,000 wounded in action. And today, this morning, in Petersburg, at the headquarters of Wagner, a big, big wizzy building that they opened last year, I think in October, November last year, it looks like one of those buildings that you see on, on the Hammersmith flyover, all sort of glass and domes. And that was their headquarters, it's now closed up, but that was their headquarters and this morning people have started laying flowers out of the front of it. Could this lead to another
0: march on Moscow?
2: No, I don't think so, um, but I think it will lead to disunity within the armed forces. There were rumours last night that an Aleutian 76, big transport aircraft, had gone to Belarus and that Wagner fighters had got into it and were on their way somewhere else. But I, I don't think there's any chance of a, of a Wagner revolt on anything like the, what looked to be the scale of June the 24th. But I do think that, that as Lord Dannett says, the uh, sense of disquiet within parts of the Russian forces, other private military companies, the airborne force. And so I think those sort of elements will actually pile pressure on Putin and on the Ministry of Defense in Moscow um, in the weeks to come. But for this week, Putin gets the benefit of looking as if he's the decisive leader at the top. So he'll feel he's had a good week, but I'm not sure he'll still feel that next
0: week. Okay, well, we will talk more about Ukraine before the end of the programme. But for now, let us turn to Cyprus, where video has been posted online of a digger being used to build a road. Charging and pushing a clearly marked United Nations vehicle. Now, this is just part of an incident that ended up in the hospitalization of four peacekeeping troops. Three of them British soldiers. Uh, they were in hospital for a weekend. Now, Mike, in the grand scheme of things, that soldiers do that physical damage is, yeah, you know, is not much. But diplomatically, uh, the, the damage is looking greater. The UN says this road building is part of a violation of the buffer zone the security council has has branded this an attack which it says could amount to crimes by Turkish Cypriot personnel Uh, and then in response we get Turkey's president accusing the UN of unacceptable physical intervention in Cyprus I mean this is pretty hard rhetoric isn't it
2: Yes, it is. And again, it's not unconnected to the Ukrainian war for a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of Russian emigres, Putinists, are in Northern Cyprus. They have bought up property, they've got um citizenship as far as it is they can get any useful citizenship out of Northern Cyprus. but they are but they're bolstering the economy and the sort of political, um significance of the northern cyprus enclave which of course turkey annexed in uh, 1974 in the invasion of cyprus and the second element also related to the war is this greater assertiveness by erdogan turkish president who is um, making it very clear that he's not going to stand still on the cyprus issue i mean he's he's pushing on all fronts at the moment to be a more assertive player and so uh, although you could say well this sort of thing just happens every now and again it's relatively random it might be but i suspect that the wellsprings behind this sort of event, pushing, putting pressure on the peacekeepers, putting pressure on the UN, is part of a a different attitude within Northern Cyprus to the uh, dividing line that's been there since
0: 1974. Yeah, uh, Cyprus is a huge part of British military life. Thousands of people have observed there. Many more have passed through. But of course, mostly we hear about it because of the airbase at Akrotiri, we, we we hear much less about Operation Tosca, which is where those British troops in in UN blue berets have been patrolling that buffer zone since 1974, when the island was split in two. Let's bring Simon Newton back in because uh, Simon, you lived and worked in Cyprus for what five years was it? Yeah, five years. Yeah, yes, so you know yes. the buffer zone pretty well. What do you make of this I do. incident?
4: Nothing of this sort of magnitude happened while I while I was there, but I'm not surprised, I have to say, just because of the the tensions that exist all the time there. I mean, this is sort of sometimes referred to as a sort of sunshine tour by some people in the military who mm. haven't been on Ostrovka, but it it really isn't that the sun does shine, but it really is a kind of diplomacy exercise for the for the soldiers that go there, and there is this constant tension between the two sides that, that they patrol the area that the brits actually patrol which is through nicosia predominantly about 30 or so kilometers you know some of it goes down to just 11 feet across um, and you have the two sides literally staring each other across this very small area so there is always this tension i've been there when things have sort of blown up and very small things become very big things very quickly so in
0: in some respects, it, it doesn't surprise me at all. The UN, I was looking at a, a UN page about this mission. They they describe they say there were about a thousand incidents mm. to use their word each year in the buffer zone. But I mean, they're talking about you know significantly smaller incidents than this generally. I mean, one of the things that that, that interests me. I'm right in saying that the, the troops there are unarmed. They are
4: unarmed. Yeah. I mean, they even go around. They go around in vehicles and sometimes on even on bicycles. So it, it is very much a peacekeeping mission. Um, I remember one incident, for instance, when I was with a, a group of, of media who were taking photos and it was sort of dusk uh, and one of the cameramen used a flash. From nowhere, dozens and dozens of Turkish Land Rover equivalents sort of appeared storming towards us, asking us what we were doing and things. So there is a, there, there is this tension
0: all the time that something c- could happen. Mike, Cyprus is hugely strategically important to the UK's armed forces is that why we've been a a constant part of this peacekeeping mission throughout to protect our our assets and capability in Cyprus
2: yes I mean we were the power that that had most influence in Cyprus uh, before the 1974 coup and we were part of the arrangement that created independent Cyprus and, and created a peace a UN peace force in uh, 1961 I think it was and it's it's become more strategically important over the years in lots of ways it's important for our intelligence gathering so it's a very important intelligence hub it's strategically important important as a jumping off place Akrotiri is a big base and Operation Shader over Syria and Iraq are conducted from Cyprus I mean we use Cyprus a lot for operations throughout the Middle East and not least in the Afghanistan operation it was the sort of the hub going in and out most of us who went to and from Afghanistan went via Cyprus at some point a lot of people were evacuated to Cyprus uh, casualties and it was the decompression place so Cyprus has, has played many roles in uh, Britain's current military commitments as it has done over many years the last century and a half. Uh,
0: yeah Simon I don't don't know about you but I know I'm, I'm one of many thousands who've uh, hadn't Unexpected overnight in Cyprus on on the way to uh, to <laughs> yeah. Afghanistan when things aren't quite working with the uh, with the planes as planned. Just tell us though a bit more about the the, the buffer zone itself. I mean, it's not deserted. It's not a no-going no go area. It, 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 it is
4: a place where people are are living. It is, and I mean, just to give you some context of what's happened. So this the the, the geographic location for this is Pila. So this is quite important because this is on the edge of the Esba, the the eastern sovereign base area near Decalia. Pila, the village, which is a mixed. Turkish Greek Cypriot village I think the only one in the actual on the island and just north of that is Arsos this Turkish Cypriot village and the conflict arose because they were trying to use bulldozers to build this road this this road has been talked of before because it's in some way politically linked to the opening of a crossing at uh, Limnitis I think in the north of the island which was back in 2010 there was some deal done potentially that they were going to be allowed to open this road and and let people through. So there's, there's a backstory to what's actually happened. And as you say, the buffer zone itself, at some points, it's four and a half miles wide. You have farmers, they can get permits for 12 months, I believe, and they can actually go and farm inside that area. And a lot of what the Brits do on the ground is to stop incursions into the buffer zone, smuggling, for instance, people just being randomly in the buffer zone partying if you like they th- that, that happens and so it's not it's not a you know completely demilitarized depopulated area there are people going to and from throughout I mean something I given
0: life happens in the buffer zone how come the building of a road can, can end up being in a war of words with the United Nations
4: yeah. the key thing you have to understand about the buffer zone is, is this phrase status quo which is repeated all the time when you're there which is that it has to remain exactly as it was Um, when the ceasefire happened in 1974 and they even I mean if you go through the center of Nicosia the British troops have maps of the buildings even down to the positions of single barrels in defensive walls that the the Turkish side have have put up and I've been with them when they've spotted something really small and innocuous happening and they have to report it back so that's the key reason that they would have been there to stop this building work taking place and you can obviously construction isn't allowed inside inside the buffer zone one interesting thing is in terms of the, the force numbers there's 250 sol- British soldiers there actually there are several Russian soldiers also part of this UN mission I think four or five of them and 250 Argentinian soldiers who the Brits actually patrol alongside which is you know given our history is quite interesting
0: yeah that's uh, quite the multinational operation so yeah. um, thank you for sharing that picture with us Mike just one brief thought before we move on I mean there have been various attempts at uh at achieving a, a proper peace for Cyprus we are no closer than we were 50 years ago though are we No, um, one thing that
2: is the case, though, is that that line, that frozen line, the peace line, has not stopped Cyprus becoming a member of the European Union. It has not prevented Turkey, you know, participating fully uh, in NATO. So it, it does sort of show the idea that if you can freeze Um, a a line, even if it's not a legitimate line, if it lasts long enough, you can still work around it with other political benefits to all parties. So there's a lot to be said for just keeping the line as it is and trying to prevent these sorts of incidents escalating into something that questions the uh, the permanence of that line because then other things start to come unraveled.
5: This is -Trap. Trap.
0: Now, Cast your mind back to February, when Ukraine's President Zelensky was in London and made an historic address to MPs at the Palace of Westminster.
1: I appeal to you and the world with simple and yet most important words. Combat aircrafts for Ukraine, wings for freedom.
0: Poland and Slovakia responded within weeks, each pledging around a dozen Soviet-era MiG-29s. But it was Western fighter jets that President Zelensky really wanted, and it's taken six months to get them. Denmark and the Netherlands, though, have now pledged US-made F-16s, with Washington's blessing. It's thought around 40 of them will arrive over the next couple of years. But the first batch, six of them, won't even arrive in Ukraine until the very end of this year. Eight Ukrainian pilots are now at a Dutch airbase for F-16 pilot training. That, though, is just the tip of the iceberg. Another 65 Ukrainian personnel are also there, learning how to maintain and service the jets. Air Vice Marshal Sean Bell, a former RAF pilot and then commander of the Harrier Force, has been telling Kate Chabot that a lot of work lies ahead to make these second-hand jets into a proper warfighting capability.
3: The trouble is, I think um, many misunderstand what an F-16 is all about, as in itself, it's a phenomenally capable platform, but unless you've got the right people, the right maintainers, the right armourers, and you've got the right weapons on board, it will not be very effective in this war. And I think one of the challenges here is this is not a simple matter of parking a number of F-16s on the lawn outside Kyiv, it's actually a very, very big undertaking to develop a truly credible combat air capability.
5: Yes, Sean, and to pick up on that people point, we know the pilot training is organised, but I was looking at the numbers for the RAF's recent air policing mission in Estonia, and about 200 people deployed to be able to put six typhoons in the air. Presumably the numbers for six F-16s are similar. How many of them are also going to need training?
3: Yeah, the numbers um, for deployment are somewhat different. But if you took a typical squadron, when I was commanding a squadron, it's about it's around about 200 people and you have around about 12 to 16 aircraft. Um very few, a small minority of those people are pilots. The vast majority are people like uh, the engineers who have to service the airplane, the armors who have to um, handle all the weapons. And even if you think about servicing the airplane, the Russian aircraft, which the Ukrainians have been operating, are very much of a different era. They're fitted by hammers and um, spanners and oil, whereas modern technology is black boxes, it's diagnostics, and that is a very different concept. And therefore, literally, probably about 10% of the training element is to do with pilots. The vast majority will be making sure these aircraft are not just Christmas trees on the ground, that they actually can fly and can operate effectively against the Russians.
5: And that, that training of those engineers, how long might that take?
3: If it's a seasoned engineer, probably only a matter of months. I mean, uh, to be blunt, the long pole in the tent here is getting pilots trained. And even when you've got pilots trained, they will be competent at the aircraft, but they will not be very experienced in that role. You can become combat ready on a frontline outfit, but it's three years of operational flying before you're considered by the squadron to be effective at being able to lead packages and be a grown up. The Ukrainians will pretty quickly learn how to operate the F-16. The challenge will be how to become combat effective. That normally takes years. Most the ground crew, um, it's it's simple to learn it from a manual, but the tips about how to get an aircraft to go, it's a bit like a classic car. Uh, If you've got an expert there who's owned it for years, he just knows what's wrong with it. Whereas the Ukrainians will not have the benefit of that, will be have to refer to the manuals and that will take them longer to get an unserviceable jet back onto the line and back into the air.
5: And what about logistics, getting the right parts into Ukraine to keep the F-16s airworthy?
3: I think that's going to be a bigger issue than perhaps everyone's making out so far. One thing, as you pointed out in the intro, these jets are second-hand, now, that's a euphemism for they're quite old, the F-16s are at the end of their life, that they are still mm. capable and competent, but they, they become a little bit less reliable, a little bit more temperamental. On a standard squadron, about half the aircraft wouldn't be available routinely, two or three of them would be in deep servicing, having engines out and big problems sorted out, whereas about a half, maybe a third of them would be available on the front line.
5: And of course, there is no point having the planes if they can't defend themselves and attack Russian forces. Does Ukraine have, or has it yet been promised, suitable weapons?
3: For me, that's the main point. The, um, most people see an F-16, an air show, and it is an incredibly capable platform, 9G, very agile, very small. But bluntly, that's just an air show. When it comes to warfighting, first of all, it needs to defend itself. And state-of-the-art defensive aids are a something that gets evolved every year. And it looks unlikely that the Ukrainians will get state-of-the-art capability. But almost more importantly, what are the air-to-air missiles and the air-to-ground weapons that they're going to be provided with? Again, and they all guided by a radar. The uh, F-16 radar is. Quite old now, and there have been lots of upgrades. But will the West actually provide a modern radar? Difficult to tell. But without being too downbeat about it, let's also be clear that the Ukrainians are currently operating flanker aircraft that are much older than any of the Russian aircraft, much less well supported with very poor radar and weapons. The F-16 will be a significant improvement on their legacy capability. The challenge is can they learn to use it and operate it effectively in the limited time available.
5: Yes, so exactly when do you think um, realistically Ukraine will be able to meaningfully deploy these F-16s?
3: Well, I know there's a massive appetite that we're all looking at the counteroffensive at the moment. The F-16s almost certainly will not be deployed any time this year in the battle for the Ukraine front line. So um, the earliest likely see jets is likely to be early next year. And uh, I think the Danes were even talking about into 2025 before some of the jets arrived. I think it's worth also pointing out, Kate, that when these uh, the F-16 was originally envisaged, most of the senior Western leaders I was talking to said that it would be wrong to associate this with the current phase of the conflict. What the West is trying to do is that in, in post-conflict, Ukraine will need to have its own indigenous combat air capability. And you can't just suddenly wave a magic wand and that appear. So by starting that process now, all of that will culminate. Almost certainly in a couple of years time, which should be in time to help provide Ukraine with the autonomous self-defense capability they're going to need to hold the peace.
0: Air Vice Marshal Sean Bell. Um, Mike, a final thought. It is Ukraine's Independence Day, marking their their independence from Russia quite some years ago now, given everything we've talked about today. Uh, How do you think the the mood in in Ukraine will be and, and should be?
2: Well, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably uh, worried, but determined. I mean, I think they're worried that the offensive is not going as quickly or as obviously well as they had hoped, and that they are worried that they may be entering into a stalemate um, that will just go on and the West will as get, get tired of supporting them. And I think that's a worry, a constant worry. But I think they'll also be determined that this will go on as far as they're concerned for as long as it takes. I think they'll be determined that this Independence Day will be followed by another Independence Day next year and another one the year after. And in due course, even an Independence Day
0: celebrated in Crimea. I think they're very determined about that. Mike, thank you very, very much. And um, my thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. Professor Michael Clark will be back with another rep next Thursday. And uh, all being well and Lost Voices found again, Kate Jabot really will rejoin Mike next week. In the meantime, don't forget you can stay up to date with all the latest military news on our website, forces.net, and catch up with past editions of the programme wherever you get your podcasts. For now, though, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.